our attention to God and His Word this morning as we look in our series and continue our series out of the book of Philippians entitled Relentless Joy. And we've been on this journey where we have been seeking to understand that God has commanded His people, His followers, you and me, to be people of joy. We are commanded in Scripture over and over again to be filled with a joy that transcends all circumstances, all difficulties, all problems and situations. And, and Paul doesn't just preach about joy in the book of Philippians, he lives it. And it isn't some Pollyanna uh, view or rose-colored glasses view of when everything's going well, you can find joy. We learn in the book of Philippians, Paul's in prison. And Paul's enduring all kinds of difficulties and hardships, but he exudes in every verse of this letter a calling and a, and a life that is filled with joy. He found joy amidst the hardships of life. And now he speaks to a church that he loves, a church that he had planted some 10 years prior to it, and he says, now Philippians, as you begin to endure hardship." As you begin to endure opposition, as you begin to deal with times of suffering, it's your turn. Tag, you're it. Now it is your opportunity. Now it's your great um, chance to live lives of joy. And because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because of God and His Word for us, it is now our turn as we read the words of an apostle to a loved church in Philippi that we now are told and commanded as Christ followers that no matter what we're dealing with, no matter the good, the bad, and ugly of life, we too are commanded to live lives of joy. No matter what week you had, no matter what opposition you faced, no matter how the circumstances around you are going, you and I as Christ's followers are called to joy. And maybe this morning you find yourself in some sort of prison cell. Maybe it's medical or financial. Maybe it's a relational issue that has you concerned. Paul wants you to know amidst your opposition, amidst your struggle, that you can find joy. Now he's speaking to a church that is beginning more and more to endure hardships and struggles because of their following of Jesus Christ. And they're on the front end of the difficulties and the struggles that are going to come. And Paul says, when opposition comes, you're going to feel like your joy is sapped from your life. And when you feel that, what I want you to do is I want you to get together and stay together with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so today, in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul has told us that he's in prison and why he's in prison and how he's found joy in prison. And now he says, listen, there's a prison of sorts coming your way. Maybe it's not chains and bars but opposition is coming, and when it does, Philippians, whether I'm here in prison away from you or whether I'm with you in body, I want you to have a unity that no problem, no circumstance, no opposition can tear you apart. And in order for us to do that, we need to know about ourselves, we need to know about God, and we need to know 
what God has called us to and how we are called to live. And so this morning in verses 27 through 30, he gives us three things that I want to draw out this morning. But let's read the text and then let's ask God's uh, uh, blessing on our time together. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27 and going through the uh, end of the chapter. You can find, by the way, this passage on page 980 in the Pew Bible, in the Pew Racks in front of you. Here's what Paul says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for Christ's sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask now for your blessing on our time. And whether, Lord, our week before us or the week that is coming now after us, whatever it has brought or will bring, I pray, Lord, that we might be a church that is unified, that we might encourage and carry one another amidst our burdens, that we remind each other of the promises of God, that we might uh, work together side by side, uh, seeking to change the world for the cause of Christ. And so, Lord, within that togetherness, might we find your joy. Might we find a joy that transcends all understanding. Might we find the joy that put a song in Paul's heart. Might that joy fill our hearts this morning as we strive together for the sake of you and your kingdom. We love you and give you praise for it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, in the Badal home right now, we are living and breathing basketball. All three of our boys are playing basketball, and so much of our schedules are filled with basketball games. I have no idea how many basketball games Amanda and I have sat in, but we were sitting uh, the other night after Noah's basketball game at a conference tournament high school basketball game uh, that was taking place. And we were sitting behind a a team uh, where they were sitting in the bench, and they were a small team. And the team they were playing against was a big team. They had a guy who was like six feet, six inches tall, muscular and strong. They had numbers. They had all the height and necessary athleticism to win the game. They were the ones who were favored to win. They were higher seated in this tournament. And and the first couple minutes of the game, it went as you would have expected. All towards what seemingly was the better team's way. Everything this little team did, it didn't work. The shots wouldn't fall. The plays wouldn't uh, play themselves out. And, and as guys were coming off the, the court to be subbed out, their, their heads were down. Their, their shoulders were slumped. And, and we were in the crowd saying, boy, this is going to be an ugly game. There's no chance that this team is going to make it. 
And at, at halftime, they were down by a whole bunch of points. And it was just a preview of what the second half was going to be. And you watch this team frustrated, agitated, some of them pointing fingers at one another. And even the coach was, was quite animated in his frustration. And they walked off the court. And it would, if you would have taken a picture, you would have said, there's a picture of a losing team. But they came out in the second half. And little by little, basket by basket, they began to get closer. I will tell you that their uh, response was so gradual that I don't even think the team that should have won the game even knew that they were getting closer and closer until the closing minute of the game when, wouldn't you believe it, the team that was down, the team that was out, the team that was pointing fingers at one another, they had done the unthinkable they won the game. And I was sitting there, and I had just finished my outline, and, and I always love it when God puts illustrations right before me, and God is screaming to me about this win. He's saying, this is my church. My church right now feels beat up. My church looks at its opponents, and it looks to the world, and it says they've got the upper hand. Every play that our church or, or God's church does Seemingly gets thrown back in our faces. We're marginalized. We're called bigoted and intolerant. We're all manner of, of, of things. We're the butt of jokes. But God has told us through his son Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. And little by little, day after day, unbeknownst to the world around it, that mustard seed gets bigger and bigger and bigger because before it becomes something huge. And likewise, the kingdom of God and the church of the living God, beaten and battered, frustrated and agitated, pointing fingers at one another. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Little by little, inch by inch, unbeknownst to the opponents and the world around it, God's kingdom is winning. And God's kingdom, when the horn sounds, will be victorious. And we forget that. And the Philippian people who were about to endure suffering and difficulty were given to forget that. And so Paul says, listen, I know I'm not with you, and so I want to write to you, here is what you need to do. If you want to be in it to win it, church, then there are some things that are going to have to happen because opposition is coming. And notice what he says in verse 27. Only let your manner or conduct, some translations say, let your conduct of life or manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's stop there. Paul says that's the goal. That's what you're called to. And what Paul says is this manner of life or conduct of life is translated from a Greek word, Palatuo. And the Greek word palatuo is where we get our English word politic from. And, and it's a little different because this word palatuo had a, had a dual meaning. It was your affiliation 
and your allegiance. That's why we use it for the word politics. So when you say, I'm a Democrat, you're saying, I have an allegiance. I have an affiliation to the Democratic Party. I'm a Republican. I have an allegiance. I have an affiliation to the Republican Party. You declare where you stand. What Paul says for the Christian is your allegiance your affiliation is going to be different than that of the world. And because you make a stand that your affiliation and allegiance is going to be different from the world, he says at the end of the passage, opposition is going to come. Suffering is going to come. And so we are going to be that team that is the minority. We're going to be that team that throughout the game we're going to be beat up and we're going to be abused and we're going to have things not go our way. But what God says is in the end, he who began that great work in us will be faithful to see it to completion. And so he says, listen, your polituo, your allegiance, your affirmation is going to be different. Well, what was the allegiance and affirmation of the people of Philippi, and for that matter, the Roman Empire. There was a saying in the Roman Empire, and you would probably, if you were a Roman citizen, would say it over and over and over again throughout the day. It many times was said um, at the beginning of a conversation. Instead of, hi, hello, how are you? People in the Roman Empire would say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so throughout the Roman Empire, they would articulate, Caesar is Lord. Now we can go on with our conversation because what we are articulating is, I'm a Roman citizen, I have an allegiance, I have an affiliation with Caesar, and I just want to get that out there. Now, uh, contemporary versions of that would be, God save the queen. Uh, In Nazi Germany, it was Heil Hitler. And that would be said over and over again, but it was Caesar is Lord in Philippi. The problem was, is Christians could not say Caesar is Lord because there is only one Lord and there's only one God and his name is Jesus and he is to be forever praised. And so the Christian was to say, not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. The Christian made a distinction of their allegiance and affiliation. I'm not with Caesar like you're with Caesar. I'm with Jesus. Now, we live in a world where we don't say Caesar is Lord. We, we don't say Obama is Lord or Trump is Lord or any other statesman or stateswomen uh, as Lord. We don't talk that way. In our culture, it's not people are Lord. It's possessions is Lord. Pleasure is Lord. Prestige is Lord. Position is Lord. And our world, our culture goes around and you see it. You see what people are all about. Fill the blank in. Blank is Lord. And you will always fill that blank with something. And so the Christians, they're standing opposed to that. And have you noticed that you can put in that blank whatever you want? The Cubs are Lord. The Bears are Lord. Money is Lord. Sex is Lord. You can name all manner of things. 
And the world's okay with that. That's, that's really great. That's awesome. Good for you. To thine own self be true. But then an individual says, Jesus is Lord. And there's a response. Recently, I was in with a large group of people, about 600 people, in a gathering where questions and answers were, were being uh, handed off back and forth. And I needed to introduce myself before I asked the question I was going to ask. And I identified myself as a Christian. And when I identified myself as a Christian, there was a palpable angst when I said the word Christian in the room. I said I was a Christian. I said, hi, my name is Tim. I'm a Christian. And the response was, ugh. Who led him in? Who gave him the mic? Not one of those guys. They're intolerant. They're bigoted. They're they're small-minded. They think that Jesus is Lord. When you get scorned, when you get mocked for Jesus, I want you to know what they are saying is get that name of Jesus out of that blank. Make something else, Lord. And so here, Paul says, you need to make Jesus your polituo, your politic, your allegiance, your affiliation. But notice, it is to be worthy of Jesus Christ. That means it needs to be in accordance with. It needs to look like it. Now listen, we are really good as Christians of talking about what we believe in. What we fail often at doing is showing them what that looks like in everyday life. Paul says, Philippians, don't just preach or profess that Jesus is Lord. Live like he is. Now that's hard. That's difficult. But that's exactly what Paul is opening with in verse 27. You say Jesus is Lord, great, now live it. Live it in word, live it in deed, so that the world may see the gospel of Jesus Christ as attractive even though they are opposed against you. Now, as you do this, people are going to come after you. Paul says at the end of the passage, notice he says a couple things are going to be true. You're going to be, uh, be tempted to be frightened, verse 28, by your opponents. Verse 29, he says that you are going to suffer for Jesus' sake. When you put Jesus in that blank, people are going to oppose you, and people are going to cause you pain and sorrow. You will suffer for the sake of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So, church, so Philippian church, What are you supposed to do? How do you find joy when you are proclaiming and professing something that is at total opposition from the rest of the world? Paul gives us three things, which we will spend the rest of our time on, three things that will give us joy as we stand opposed to the world and its thoughts and systems. Number one, we've got to stick together. It involves sticking together. He goes on, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, do this no matter if I'm there or not, that I may hear that you are standing firm, notice what he says, in one spirit, 
and in one mind, and later he says side by side. That word standing firm is the word stako in the Greek. And that word was used almost almost exclusively in military terms. It was a soldier word. It was literally a soldier who stood his place, stood in his place, no matter what opposition was coming, he did not retreat, he did not surrender, he stood his ground. Now, why would Paul use a military word for the believers in Philippi? The reason is Paul knows his audience. Remember, in the, illust- in the introduction of the book of Philippians, that Philippi was a city that was filled in the ancient world with retired military men. And so what he's saying is, is hey, I know you military guys out there, you're going to know this word, stako, and they're going to be like, yeah, that's what our superior officers would tell us. Stand firm. And so what Jesus, or I'm sorry, what Paul is saying as followers of Jesus Christ is that we're soldiers. As a kid, we would sing in our church the old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. So that metaphor sticks. It works. Paul says, endure hardship like a good soldier in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And so this metaphor of being a soldier in an army is important for us. And what Paul is trying to draw out is soldiers stand their ground amidst opposition, but there's some more truths that we need to understand. Number one, we need to recognize in the church, if we're going to find joy amidst opposition, that we are all soldiers in the same division. What that means, first of all, is that we are accountable to the same general. So if you were to go to an army base and you were to ask these soldiers, the privates and, and, and the corporals and the sergeants and all of that, hey, who's in charge? Who do you listen to? At the end of the day, they would point to a general. He's our guy. He's the one who leads. When the general says we go into battle, we go into battle. There's no question you're not insubordinate. Think of the hundreds of thousands of men who put themselves into harm's way when General Eisenhower said, today is D-Day. Well, why did they do it? Because their general told them to. As soldiers, we all have the same general, and we're all accountable to the same general, Jesus Christ, who gives us our marching orders. Number two, as soldiers... We need to stick together, and soldiers remind us of that. If you've ever seen a military parade and soldiers marching, they march in the same direction, and they march in lockstep with one another. Now, are they all the same? No. In fact, usually in every war movie that you'll see, when they get into the lives of the guys that are fighting, almost always, whether it's Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers, they tell you how different every one of them are. Different faiths, different places where they grew up, different backgrounds, different social economic status, all of these different things, and yet they're all moving in the same direction. They're all going with the same mission. And likewise, we who are accountable to the same general are called to march out on the same mission 
And what is that mission? It's against an adversary, the same adversary. Again, I I go back to war movies, and you'll see at times within the battle, uh, the group of soldiers will fight, will bicker. And you know what stops the bickering and fighting? is when the enemy starts shooting at them. Well, who cares who stole my cigarettes? Who cares who stole my girlfriend? Who cares about that? They're trying to kill us. So we're going to stop yelling at each other, and we're going to fight the common enemy. But sadly, in churches today, there's so much friendly fire and infighting going on that we are unable to see the true enemy because we've called the person in the pew next to us the enemy instead of the devil. And so we've got this issue where we need to recognize being a part of a church is something more than Sunday morning attendance. A soldier is always on alert. The Bible tells us this. Peter says, your enemy, the devil, he is roaming about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we need to recognize in each other's lives, is that person vulnerable to the enemy's attack? Is that person vulnerable to the enemy laying him down without him knowing it? And we need to help one another. We need to cover one another. We need to be each other's eyes and ears in each other's lives because we're in a battle, and the battle is intense, and the battle, listen to me, is for our souls. And so Paul says, stay co, stand firm. Stand side by side, arm in arm, locked together, a brother and sister in arms, because if you are unified, you are not easily broken. But there are things that disunify us. There are things that erode unity within a church or within a team. I coach my middle son, Josh's basketball team, a bunch of 14-year-olds, eighth graders, great group of guys. And, and, and would you believe it? When we're winning, there's great unity. There's unity when we get the trophy at the end of the tournament, right? But when things aren't going right, we had a game yesterday, things weren't going right in the first half, and and they came over in the huddle, and you know what happened? Fingers started pointing. Oh, he's not doing what he's supposed to. How could you have missed that pass? I got it to you. You was in your hands, and they're bickering back and forth, and a good coach stops and says, we win as a team, we lose as a team. Now let's pull this thing together. Paul is saying, whether I'm with you or not, I need you to stand side by side, sticking together, because it isn't unity isn't going to be a problem when everything's going well, but Philippi, uh, suffering's coming. Opposition is coming. And you're going to start pointing fingers at one another. And there are some things that the opposition that we face will cause us to do. First of all, the first thing, write these down. There are three things that can disunify a church. First of all, it's preferential agendas. We all have preferences. Our preferences are what make us individuals. Our preferences are what make us a good church because it makes us a full orb church. We're not all the same. It's not cookie cutter. There's a lot of great things going on. 
I love to see people using their gifts in ways that I never could. I told Josh a couple weeks ago, Josh Caterer, I said, Josh, it would be awesome. You know, I'm really excited about this Philippians series. I would love to have a song that would go with it. And he comes back like two days later. He's like, here's the song. You go to Walmart to pick those things up? And we've sung the song. And I sit there and go, oh, my goodness. I am so glad Josh has been gifted in ways I never would be because we're a better church because of that. But with differences, listen to me, come disagreements. And the church can be filled with all kinds of disagreements. And what can happen is instead of being unified, we separate. And what will begin to happen is we come into church when this should be a unifying place and we say, we don't like the paint on the walls. We don't like the music that was sung. Why do they keep playing those drums? Why is it so loud? Why does he preach so long? You're not supposed to laugh at that. That's not funny. And we have all of these things. Why do they do it this way? Why didn't they do it that way? And what happens is, is we stop looking at our own, or we stop looking at other people, and we start looking at ourselves. Paul hits on this, and we'll deal with it in the next couple of weeks. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, stop looking at your own interest and start looking to the interest of others. So let me tell you, when those things start to pop up, and at 43, I'm starting to be old enough that, hey, we didn't do that like we do now. Back then, those were the glory days. I'm starting to have those glory days experiences in my old age. And when that rises up in you, Paul says, stop looking at your own interests and, stop lo- and start looking at the interests of others. Why? Because if we're all about us and we come into this place, we will never be unified. When we are looking to our own interests, listen to me, that's anarchy. We have to look at the interests of others. So when that rises up, say, I can't stand that paint color. Oh my gosh, drives me nuts every time I see it. But you know what? It's bringing in the kids. And they seem to like it. I don't know why, but they do. I don't understand this music we sing, but I'm sure glad to see the younger people in here. They seem to like it. I don't understand why we do this or that. Well, the old people like it, and so I'm going to stretch. I'm going to look to their interests and not just to my interests. Be careful with preferential agendas. What about personal agendas? Personal agendas is a little deeper than preferences. Personal agendas say, it is all about me. Third John, the book of Third John, calls out a guy named Diatrophes. And Diatrophes gets a description. How would you like to be good old Diatrophes? You get named in the Bible. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. I made it into the Bible. This last week, my son Noah made the the paper, and I was so excited. Someone in our community put a couple newspapers in our mailbox, and and I was showing someone, hey, Noah's in the paper. So Diatrophes says, hey, Mom, Dad, I'm in the paper. And then he looks at John, uh, 3rd John, and it says, Diatrophes, he's always got to be first. That's all we know about Diatrophes. It's all about him. Can I ask you this morning, is your Christianity all about you? Is it all about you, your needs, your desires, your wants, your preferences? 
Because if it is, it is no longer a church you're a part of. It's an activity in vanity. Now, I'm going to go even farther and say that what that used to be is that churches were run by people in the pew that the church revolved around because they were first. Can I tell you, in the evangelical world, we've switched that, and no longer so much is it a problem in the pew as it is in the pulpit. We have churches now where the pastor has become such a celebrity that it's all about him. It's about the books he's written. It's about uh, the studies he's created. It's about the sermon he's preached. And what happens is, is, is when someone says, hey, where do you go to church? Instead of naming the church, you say, I go to so-and-so's church. Oh, you go to his church. Listen to me. This will never be Tim Bidall's church. It will never be. And if it is, I will kick myself out of this place because it isn't about me. It isn't about Josh. It isn't about Mario. It isn't about Phil. It's not about our pastors. The church in Philippi wasn't about Paul. It was about Jesus Christ. And so we need to recognize whatever our agenda is, whether it's in the pulpit or the pew, it is about him and him crucified and him resurrected and him getting all the glory and praise. So let me ruffle your feathers now. Let me give you one more unity issue. And it's not in the the city of Philippi. It's not in the book of Philippians. But it's something that I see more and more as we move on in our own application and it's beyond preferences or personal, the agenda that I'm concerned about, and I share this with, uh, for you to think through and discern, but I'm worried about political agendas. I'm reading more and more about church being described as who they like and don't like in the White House. We have Christian publications coming out, kick the president out. We have other ones say, keep him in forever. And they're arguing with one another. And as a pastor who loves politics, who is engaged in politics, it saddens me because what I don't hear, I hear that the church is either for someone or against someone. And you know what I don't hear at all? That we're about Jesus. We're about Jesus. And so be careful when your politics start trumping, no pun intended, start trumping all other things. The only thing that matters for the church is not who's in Washington, D.C. It's not who's on the Supreme Court. It's not who's in the legislature. It is that Jesus Christ is the one seated and enthroned in glory. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when people say, who are you for? I'm for Jesus. That's what it means to stick together. To stick together and live a life, a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, let me see, I I say all this and then I start seeing some of your faces, so let me disclaim a couple things. Does that mean you can't have preferences? No, have your preferences. Does it mean you can't have some level of personal agenda? We all have personal agendas. Does it mean we cannot be involved in politics? No, be involved in politics. But none of that can supersede that what we're about and what we're focused in on doing here at Village Bible Church is about Jesus Christ and his kingdom work. And so let's make that the major. Let's focus in on that as we move forward. Now, we can't just sit here and stick together 
and sing kumbaya and, and sing our songs. We've got to do something else. Notice it goes on, verse 28, and it says, okay, now that you're sticking together, you're standing together, standing firm, now I want you in one spirit, in one mind, to strive together side by side. That word strive there is an important Greek word. It is the Greek word of son athleto, son athleto. That word son athleto is from the root word. It's two words put together. The first word son, meaning as one or together. And the second word athleto is the Greek word for athletes. We are to strive as athletes who are one. Now, why would Paul bring up in his letter while in prison the idea of athletics? Was he watching ESPN on his TV in prison cell? Was that what was on? No. But he knew Philippi was in Greece. And just as there were Roman citizens in Philippi who would have understood military words, he knew that the Greeks, they were all about the games. They were all about the Olympics. They were all about athletics and competition. And so Paul says, listen to me. I want you to be a son athleto. I want you to be one team working together as athletes unto the Lord. So we've got some work to do. So how are we to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We do it just like athletes do it. Write these three things down. Number one, to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received and worthy of Christ Jesus our Lord means we've got to practice. We have to practice. Again, I coach a team, and I will tell you we've had five games so far. Five games. I will tell you we've had twice as many practices. Why? Because you always need to practice more than you play. And so you need lots of practice to learn the plays, to understand the goals, to fix what you may be deficient in, to strengthen those strengths that you have. And so any good team, any good coach, has you practicing more than you play. And there's a, there's a motto that you will play like you, help me out athletes, practice. And so how you go about practice is an indicator of how you are going to play. Now here's the thing that we need to remember. Practice happens with your team. The game, the competition, is with your opponents. The team works together in practice to make each other better. The opponent seeks to beat you. Our gatherings, whenever we gather as a church, as a team, is practice. You are right now a part of Sunday morning practice. It is a 90-minute practice, and like any uh, player on a team, practice always seems to go longer than they say it does. And so you've got your team. Your coaches are your elders, and the elders have, have put together a game plan, a scheme of how we are going to make ourselves better how we're going to follow Christ in a deeper and more godly way, because we've got some games that are going to go on 
that we need to be ready for. And so we want to practice in the same manner that will allow us to play. Well, when are our games? Our games are when we leave the building. And so what's going on here is this morning we practice. You said, I didn't do anything. I sat. This was the easiest practice in the world. No, we ran our place. What does it mean to worship God? Well, here it is. And we sing and we talk about the beautiful name of Jesus and the victory we have in in Christ and, and the conquering of sin and the conquering of death. And we remind ourselves of these things. Why? So that when we leave this place, we can worship on our own. Why do the elders pray? So they may model for you what prayer looks like how to lift up our concerns and supplications to the Lord so that when you are by yourself and you're out in your game, you know how to pray. Why do we talk about service? Why do we do weekend pictures? Why do we have Darnell up here talking about orphan ministry? So that you'll know how to serve. You'll know what it means to serve and to be the hands and feet of Jesus, not just here in practice, but out in the world. But Why does Tim preach? My job of preaching, listen to me very carefully, is to teach you how to study God's Word. This is how you do it. So I want you to go home, and I want you to do the same thing. Take what we've learned in practice and put it into game time situations. The problem is, is so many of us come into practice unprepared, unready, not ready to do the hard work, And so we go out in the world and we're like, Lord, where are the opportunities? Well, the opportunities are all there. Yesterday, we ran a new play on my basketball team. And they had learned it. And we ran it again and again and again. And our point guard yelled. And I'm like, what? He's calling the new play. And our team did it. And we got a basket. And I was like, it worked. They had practiced it. And they went out in real time and in a real way. They pulled it off. And it worked. But if we come to church ill-prepared, For practice, we will do nothing when the game time scenario takes place. We need to practice. Write this down. We need to perspire. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to mean hard work. You can't simply say, I'm going to do this and have it happen. It's got to come through hard work. And so we've got to be willing to do this. Paul will say later on, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It isn't a vacation. It isn't a break. It's work. We're going to have to say no to some things and and yes to other things. And so we're going to have to turn away from temptations and sin so that we may follow God. Finally, it means we need to persevere. So we stand out on the court and we've practiced and we've prepared and we've done the hard work and now the game is on. And we're out in the world and we're in the workplace and we're in the community. And an opportunity comes where you can be the hands and feet of Jesus. You're like, listen, I'm ready for it because I prepared for it. An opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in your workplace or community or school. And all of a sudden the words start coming out and you're like, how did that happen? Because you took practice seriously. How great would it be if we here at Village Bible Church saw our times together as a practice that launches us out for game time. 
that if we were to leave this huddle and run out in the world and say, whatever they're going to bring at us, we've got what we need to not only defend against it, but to find victory. We stand together. We strive together. Notice the final thing. God may call us to struggle together. He goes on and he says, I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but also of your salvation and that being from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, if you underline, underline those next three words, but also suffer. It is God's plan that his people suffer. People say when they see me, um, we had in the first service a family that um, knew my dad, knows my dad really well, and they said, boy, you sound like him, boy, you look like him, boy, you laugh like him, you, you tell stories like him, you are your father's son. And I said, well, I appreciate that, my dad's a good man, and I like my dad, I, I like that. Because we carry the same DNA, right? The DNA that we carry from Christ is suffering. Our DNA that connects us, which tells us I am of Christ, is suffering. Now, you say, wait a minute, I'm not really suffering. There's martyrs out there suffering and all that. But I want you to know suffering, how Paul uses it, it's a, it's a spectrum. And remember, Paul says he's suffering. Where's Paul? He's in prison. And he says that the Philippians are suffering, and they're just living life within the Roman Empire, in the city of Philippi, within a church. Both are called suffering. So what is suffering? Suffering, listen, is, is this. Any opposition you face because of Christ. Any opposition you face because of Christ. And so if you get laughed at at school, that's suffering if you're being laughed at for Christ. If you are uh, losing opportunities at work because you have stood for Christ, you're suffering. Because you're being marginalized because of Christ, you're suffering. You don't have to lose your life and be a martyr to suffer. And Paul says in this world, you're going to have opponents. And so you need to stick together. You need to stand together. And, and what this will show the world is that their fight against us is futile. It's futile. Their way is going to lead them to destruction. What he's saying is little by little, moment by moment, word by word, God's kingdom is growing. And not only is God's kingdom growing, but God's kingdom has already sealed the victory. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus said it is finished. Paul, reflecting and reminiscing on the cross and, and the empty tomb, says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's all been swallowed up. God says, I win. My people win. And so when you leave this place, when you go into your schools, when you go into your workplaces, when you go into your communities, you don't walk off the court with your head down and your shoulders slumped. You come in and say, yeah, we've got opposition, but greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I'm victorious. And I've got a conquering king who's leading and guiding me. I've got a conquering spirit within me that is going to allow me to stand firm as I stick together with followers of Jesus Christ as we proclaim that gospel through lives that are lived 
worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so take joy, my friends. It's halftime. And maybe we feel like we're down. Maybe we feel like the first half didn't go our way. But let's be reminded, Jesus says, victory is already ours. In fact, victory is his name. And let's go out like champions. And let's live this life to win it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and thank you for this time in your word. And now, Lord, as we leave practice, it's game time. And some of us, we've got some tough opponents this week. There's some students in our, in our classes that are really fighting against us. There, there's a boss that hates the very essence of us living for you and your kingdom. There's coworkers, there's neighbors, there's family members who stand opposed to us. Remind us, Lord, that they are not the opponents, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the princes and principalities of the dark world and the dark forces of the devil. And so give us what we need. Fill us with the Spirit so that we may take what we have learned here today and that we can live it for the world to see. Lord, you are our victory. So let us be confident and let us be sure of the victory you've already won us. We love you and praise you for it all. In Christ's name, amen.